Okay. All right, if you would open your Bibles this morning to 2 Timothy, 4th chapter and the first verse. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, and we're going to continue our study of the Christian life in the last days, and we have uh, seen in chapter 3 some very important things. The way that people are going to hold a form of godliness in the last days, that uh, there's some that will become spiritual predators, preying on other Christians and and, uh, unbelievers. There'll be those who rely simply on their intellect. They think they know it uh, well enough. They don't have to to, uh, uh, bother learning anymore. Uh, We see that there are those who manipulate other people. They figured out ways to uh, use other people. It's interesting. We're supposed to serve other people and not manipulate them to serve us, but we're supposed to serve other people. We find out that in the last days is a fear of persecution. And a lot of times people are just afraid to even let others know that they are a Christian. And then the big one, uh, verse 16 and 17, this is in the context of the last days, is that uh, the enemy goes after the inspired word of God. And all scripture is God-breathed. It is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness so that the man of God can be adequate and thoroughly furnished for every good word. So we are called to do that and to defend the faith. And yet so many Christians today, if you ask them if they believe the Bible is fully inspired, 90% of them say no. And the ones that do say yes oftentimes can't defend it. They don't know why they would believe that. And if they're not careful, they get chewed up and spit out by the by the enemy because he's better educated in a lot of ways than we are. That's oftentimes how cults make inroads into uh, people's lives is because they've got more information to deal with and they're able to mess with people's heads instead of having the the counterpoint and the counterbalance what the Word of God actually says as a comeback and that's part of the way that they do it. So we see those are real battles, and Paul now is going to give his final exhortation. This is his last epistle. This is the epistle that uh, he basically says, I'm getting ready to go, and it's over. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith, and, and challenging us to do the same thing. So what do we do in the last days? We want to persevere because we know persecution is there. So we persevere in the persecution is what we've got to realize. But these are real important passages. They continue to tell us more about the last days. And since they do that, we can learn specific applications, pertinent applications, for the time in which we live. So let's take just a minute for silent prayer to get ourselves ready to study God's Word. There I don't know if you've been distracted this last week with all the stuff going on in the world, but it's very easy to do that. So now it's time to push that all aside. Let God's word speak to us. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your plan. Father, we thank you for our redemption. We thank you that you have been satisfied in your righteousness and justice. Father, we thank you that sin as an issue has been taken away and that's about faith. Father, there's so many things to thank you for. 
we're going to be thanking you for all of eternity. And what a blessing that is. We ask today that you would give us some insight, some deeper insight into your word, that we can come to a greater appreciation of it and thus grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask this in his name. Amen. At 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, now, first in, uh, in the first two chapters of 2 Timothy, we didn't go through this time. And it basically is an exhortation to, uh, to Timothy to endure the present testing. First century, when this is being written, the persecution under the Roman Empire was just getting going uh, quite well, about 62 A.D. Nero is coming to power, Nero the Nut. Uh, he, was, he was just literally crazy. And uh, kind of reminds us of some leaders today that we see on the television. But uh, truly a nut. And so he's telling Timothy and the people at Ephesus where Timothy's the pastor to uh, get ready because more of it is going to come. And then in chapter 3 he talks about the last days. Now it's not yet the last days uh, for the church age. It's coming up on the last days for Israel as a nation because eight years after this is written is 70 A.D. and in Jerusalem they're going to be spread out all over the earth. That's what is going to happen. So it has a significance, but it has reached a level today that's never reached on a worldwide scale. And we're able to look at these things. And so we've found out in chapter 3, that's the fight. This is the fight that we're you know, to, to prepare, to stand firm, to be ready for the fight. It's, it's interesting. I, I heard some uh, really strong Christian people say before, uh, Gary Horton, one of them, uh, Gene Cunningham, one of them. I've heard them say, you almost have to develop a love for the battle. Almost develop a love for the battle. In other words, we're in a fight. We're in a battle. And do we want to be on the, we're on the winning side. Do we want to be one of the winners? Do we want to be one of the overcomers in this life that overcomes all the evil that is going on? And so if you want to do that, then you, you've got a leg up on it. And you start gaining the tools and learning how to use them in order to do that. Now chapter 4 is about finishing strong. That's where we want to be. Because sometimes it's easy whenever we see the, uh, what do they call it, short timers? You can see a short timer. They called them that in the military. When they knew they were getting out, they were just trying to keep from getting in trouble or get hurt or killed. Or I mean, they're short timers, and they actually become dangerous at times. Uh, people, same thing happens in businesses. I know a lot of businesses that uh, if you announce that you're going to retire, you just did. Uh, you don't, you don't, they don't want short timers there and they will pack you up and have security escort you out of the building. That's the, that's the way it is in a lot of oil companies and things like that. They don't want short timers going on because they can make a whole lot of mistakes in these last few, few days. So we don't want to be a short timer Christian saying, well, the rapture's close and uh, we can just kind of coast on through the pearly gates and all that. We want to finish strong. We don't, want, we don't want God kicking us through the pearly gates. We want somebody holding us back. We want to finish it strong with all we've got. So here are our marching orders, the first eight verses. That's all we're going to cover this chapter, and you'll see why as we move through it. But in verse 1, 
Paul says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you. Now the word solemnly charge is a present middle indicative. He's saying I'm doing this right now. Middle says that it's come from his volition. That Paul has decided to do this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Indicative it's historical fact. And dia marturomai is the word that's used. Marturomai means to be a witness of. And dia means through. So it means to, to thoroughly witness something. To witness through the event. Through the situation. She's 15 times. To witness through and through. And basically he's, he's standing. I solemnly charge you. Paul is standing as a witness. But there's other witnesses. In the presence of the God. Do you notice this corrected translation? This CTLT corrected or literal translation out of the out of the Greek. Now in Greek 101, you learn a thing called the Granville Sharp Rule. I call it a principle, but it is a grammatical principle that is taught very early on, and it's a specific construction that tells you something sets up an equation. And for some reason. The New American Standard translators didn't translate all of them appropriately. But it says, the God, and then it has and, the chi word for and, and the next noun doesn't have a the in front of it. If it had a the in front of it, it'd be talking about two separate things. But it, whenever it says, the God, and should be translated even, Christ Jesus Yeshua HaMashiach. This is even the, the way it is translated. So it's telling us, it's setting up an equation. Our God is Christ Jesus. Messiah, who is named Jesus. And a Greek construction is as strong as you can get on it. So it's saying, it's not, it's not that, see, God didn't just become God. God's always been God. So he's saying that here is, here is a reference to Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, and it is saying that he is God. And so Paul makes that emphatic assertion here at, the, at this, the part of this verse. He says, who is to judge the living and the dead? Now, judging the living and the dead, he's going to judge the living. Uh, and is he talking about spiritually alive and spiritually dead? Or physically alive and physically dead? Or how about both? Sometimes people get into the either or, and it's not either or, it's actually both. Because the living, gosh, you as a believer are never going to die, but you're going to die physically. Uh, but uh, the, the dead, uh, the unbelievers, they're already dead, and they'll be judged. Revelation chapter 20, they're spiritually dead. One day they'll be physically dead, and then they are gonna, he, who's going to judge them? Jesus, the Messiah, is going to judge them. Are believers going to be judged? Yes. We're going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. So it says that the who is to judge the living and the dead. So whether they're spiritually alive or spiritually dead or physically alive or physically dead, there's going to come a point in time, and guess what that time is? By his appearing. Appearing is epiphania. It's uh, phania means to manifest, and epi means upon. In other words, when he becomes visible, that's what he's talking about—to manifest upon 
the earth to manifest in, in a way that is visibly seen. At his appear by his appearing and his kingdom. So notice the two quali- uh, qualities here for judgment. His appearing and his kingdom. Now what is Paul talking about? So Paul ta- charges Timothy before the most trustworthy of witnesses. In the presence of the God who is the Messiah named Jesus. That's literally what it is saying. Because Christ is not his last name. It means the anointed one. Just like it meant in the Old Testament. It is the anointed one. Mashiach is the word meaning anointed. And that's who Jesus Christ is. He is special. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. And so, who is the Messiah named Jesus? And it's actually calling on his omnipresence. Is it not? We're in the presence of the God Almighty right now. Now how many times do we forget that? It's real easy to forget, isn't it? It's real easy to forget. But He's omnipresent. And when you start thinking about the ramifications of omnipresence, you know, He could... Uh, <laughs> he is at the same place at all times. He's, he's everywhere at all times. But think about this with the same intensity. Because that means that he's in the farthest reaches of the universe with the same intensity as he is here. Now that's what omnipresence really means. It's that he doesn't get spread too thin like we do. He is not finite. He is infinite. He has no problem doing this. He can also manifest himself anywhere he chooses to be and in more than one location at the same time. That's who he is. So that's what the, the attribute, divine attribute of omnipresence is about. He is there. So Paul is saying, I'm charging you, Timothy, in the, in the presence of, guess who? God himself. In the presence of God himself. And by his appearing in his kingdom. Now, the uh, two are present before the judge of all. Because he's going to do the judging, right? Who is who is the judge of all? That's the Lord himself. Didn't he claim that back in the Gospel of John? It's all over the Gospel of John. He is going to judge the living and the dead. That's who he is and what he is going to do. Who is to judge the living and the dead. This points to his righteousness. Because he's a righteous judge. How many times in the Mosaic Law does he contemn uh, unrighteous judges or biased judges or judges that show partiality? And it points to his righteousness, his justice, his immutability. His judgment's going to be the same. He's unchanging. He never changes. His omnipotence. He has the power to judge. His omniscience. He knows all the ins and outs of the judgment and his eternality. So look at all these things that connect to the fact that he is the judge of all. What is the essence of God? We learned it, a lot of us, in just ten attributes, ten basic attributes. He is sovereign or king, righteous, justice, eternal life, love. We also find omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, immutability, and veracity. And guess what we're finding here? We're finding in the presence. He's telling Timothy, you're standing in front of the Almighty. 
any way you want to slice it, you are in front of the Almighty Timothy. And as Paul, the apostle, charges him, he says, pay attention to that. The standards are his appearing and his kingdom. And this looks to his veracity and his sovereignty. Because his appearing was prophesied uh, millennia before he actually walked on the planet. His, his uh, appearing was, was prophesied. And his sovereignty, that's his kingship. That's what sovereign means, is king. So this is saying, these are the standards by which he's going to judge. See, some people say, well, I, I feel like I've done enough good things to get into heaven. Excuse me. Uh, have, have you died on the cross for the sins of the world? Well, no. I don't need to. Why do you not need to? Because somebody else took your place. Here is the is veracity. He's kept his word all through time and his sovereignty. He's the one that says, this is what needs to be done for you to enter my presence for all of eternity. So it's veracity and sovereignty. The Lord's appearing includes... And what is that? So if we're going to be judged by this, we need to know what it is, right? The Lord's appearing includes the first advent. We're just going to let the scripture tell us what his appearing includes. By his appearing in his kingdom. Now, the first advent in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Now, notice that the context here is, is the same. It says, who has saved us. And called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Messiah Jesus from all eternity, but now have been revealed by the appearing, the epiphania of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So as appearing, whenever this word appearing, you have to identify, is it first advent or something else? Because there's two other things. But this word doesn't make the distinct, this verse doesn't make the distinction, does it? By his appearing and his kingdom. Is it talking about the first advent only? So you need to realize that Messiah has come. And especially if you're a Jew, you need to realize Messiah has come. See, that's very important because if he's going to judge humanity by his appearing and his kingdom and you don't believe that he's been here, that poses a significant problem, significant problem. Now, the first advent, then you have the rapture. We'd almost expect that, wouldn't we, because we're looking forward to that. Well, guess what? The rapture is called his appearing. From 1 Timothy 6.14, which says, that you keep the commandment, this is what Paul's already written Timothy in the previous epistle, without stain and reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's already been here once. Timothy's a believer. He's a pastor and elder of a church. And he says, uh, till the appearing, he's got to be referring to the rapture which had already been revealed in 1 Thessalonians 4. It had already been revealed 10 years earlier. Timothy knew all about it, and I'm sure he taught it. So it's based on the fact, do you believe the Lord's coming back? Do you believe he's coming back? Because that's part of the judgment. What people are going to be evaluated on when they stand in front of him. Do you believe that he's coming back? 2 Timothy 4.8 
is uh, that's a verse coming up. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So you want the crown of righteousness? The word appearing there doesn't necessarily point us to the rapture, but are you looking for the rapture? I know probably everybody in here is. We've been looking for the rapture for a long time. And we're waiting for the trumpet. We're waiting to get snatched out of here by the hair on our head. One little cult group, the Hare Krishnas, keep that top knot coming out of the back of their head. And they have a semi-belief in Jesus. And they think when he comes back, he's got to have something to get hold of. (laughs) The Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. (laughs) Psalm 2. Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God has appeared. What's that? First Advent. Bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. See, if we want to get our life with a proper perspective, it starts out, and he's telling us right here, we've got to realize that Jesus came. He accomplished his mission the first time that he came, which was to die on the cross to pay for sins. He accomplished it. Is he coming back? Well, he said he is, didn't he? He says, I will go and bring you to myself that where I am there you may be also. John 14, he certainly did say, I'm coming back for you. In Acts chapter 1, when he ascended into heaven, the angel said he's going to return in just the same way he went. He is. He's going to be coming on the clouds. That's what's going to be happening. So you have, do you believe that he is going to be coming back in the rapture? Now see, to me that is extremely important because it has to do with when we stand in front of him. But see, his omniscience, you're not going to be able to fool him. You're not going to be able to say, well, I believe that all along. He'll know whether you did or whether you didn't. Whenever we stand there, we can stand there in shame. Believers can stand in front of the Lord in shame. 1 John 2.28 says that. We don't want to stand in front of Him in shame. Are we looking for Him, are we looking for him now to come back? <clears throat> and it says, Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's part of our life now. To have ourselves oriented to the time in which we live. And that's a true for all the church. First century, it, see, that's when this is being written. Even in the first century, they were supposed to look for his return. They didn't know when it was going to be. They were getting new doctrine. They were getting progressive revelation. Book of Revelation hadn't been written yet. And all they, what they needed to know is he's coming back. He's coming back. They didn't have to think he's coming in their generation or anything like that. He's coming back. In fact, if you read those verses carefully, he tells people he is not coming back in their generation. How did he do that? Well, he he told Peter he was going to die. Guess what? If If you're raptured, you don't die. So the Lord was exactly right when he told Peter he was going to die. 
So he he knew what was what was gonna the Lord knew what was gonna happen, but the the disciples they were still in a learning curve. Now guess what's next? The appearing, the second advent. Because what happens at the second advent? Second Thessalonians two eight. Then that lawless one, that's the man of lawlessness who takes his seat in the temple of God. That's Second Thessalonians two will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, the parousia. I love the word coming translated there. Parousia means to be or exist alongside. Uh, the Lord will be actually with us. So when you're getting ready to stand there, you need there's some things you need to know. The Lord's been here. He's coming back. And then he's going to come back again and defeat all of his enemies. Because when he comes at the rapture, he's not there to defeat all of his enemies. He's there to take out the righteous and leave the wicked. And leave them to their own wickedness for seven years. When he comes back at the end of seven years, he's there to take out the wicked and leave the righteous to inherit the millennial kingdom. So he says, by his appearing and his kingdom. Do you believe there's a coming kingdom in which the Lord is going to sit on the throne? Now these are two very clear standards that Paul is charging Timothy with. Now the kingdom includes both the spiritual and the physical kingdoms. It's real easy to get in arguments theologically over this, even with people in our own camp, because they think any time the word kingdom is talked about, it's talking about the physical millennial thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. But I don't think that's the case alone. I believe there's a spiritual kingdom that's entered to, into at the point of salvation. And the reason I believe that is because Colossians 1 Verse 13 and 14 states it about as clearly as it can be stated. As we study the scripture, we look for the, we look for the, the clear statements. This is hermeneutically sound. You look for the stuff that says stuff emphatically, universally. This is the way it is. Okay? And then, if you find other passages that are obscure, as they call them, Oftentimes they're obscure because they don't fit their theology. But if, if you look at them and you go, well, what does that mean? How can it mean? You interpret the obscure in view of the clear. So when you have a clear passage that makes sense, you interpret other passages to align with that. It's the harmony of Scripture. It's taught hermeneutically in the first year of any good seminary. They're going to teach hermeneutics. How do you interpret the Scripture? And you let the clear interpret the obscure. Colossians 1.13 says, For he delivered. I love the word delivered here because it's the word ruomai. It's used 17 times and it means to rescue out of danger. See, our so great salvation is a preservation from the great white throne judgment. It's, it means to be preserved from, but ruoma, that's sozo. This word ruomai means to be rescued out of the middle of danger. It means you're already in it. And that's, that's beautiful to me because it's kind of like you you got a kid and he's standing there. I've used this illustration before. And you're standing on the street corner and you want to cross the street. And your, your child steps off into the street and there's an oncoming car. 
and you grab them by the shirt or whatever you can get hold of them with and you jerk them back up on the curb. That's rule mine. If you're standing there with your arms like this so they can't get out there, that's sozo. Two different things, both very distinctive and important. And he says, he delivered us, he rescued us out of the middle of what? The domain of darkness. Domain is the word for authority, exousia. Out of the authority of darkness. Now who's got that? The devil. So what did the Lord do? He rescued us out of the authority of darkness and he transferred. This is an aorist tense. Both of these are aorist tenses. Looks at point of time. And it says rescues methistomy used five times. It means to move from one place to another. Uh, one of the usages is 1 Corinthians 13, 2, if you have all faith, so as to move mountains. <laughs> to move from one place to another. Ruomai, to move from one place to another. Out of danger, into safety. And he said, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Both those are aorist indicatives. Indicatives are historical facts. It's an emphatic way to say that we've been put into this kingdom. But it's a kingdom, a physical kingdom, that is not yet. Some people say we're living in this this physical kingdom now. Or we've got to get this world to the point that is so good that Jesus will come back. Just need to keep reading the book because the book (laughs) does not teach that. It just doesn't teach that. It is going to be an absolute disaster when he comes back. And he's going to come come back at the second advent and destroy all of his enemies. We are never going to get the world good enough for Jesus to come back. It's a futile effort. It doesn't mean we don't try to live and evangelize and disciple. It doesn't mean we don't try to do that. It means we realize without Jesus there's no millennial kingdom. There's just no millennial kingdom. And... <clears throat> The physical kingdom. Oh, it says, um, to the kingdom of his beloved Son, I'll finish verse 14, in whom, Christ Jesus, we have present indicative. At the present time, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, how do you get into his spiritual kingdom? By faith in Jesus Christ. You're saved. You're rescued out of the authority of Satan, delivered into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's just not yet physical on this earth. One of these days, he's gonna, he's either, <laughs> either going to take us up at the rapture and bring us back with him at the second advent to inherit the kingdom, or he's going to raise us from the dead to get us there. But he will keep his, his promise. The physical kingdom refers to the millennial kingdom which will be entered when Christ establishes his throne on the earth. Now, from 1 Corinthians 15, we have Resurrection Sunday coming up next week. I fully suspect that this verse will be touched on again next week. It is, it is a passage that's, that the Corinthians, along with every other goofy thing that they did, a lot of them stopped believing in the resurrection. <laughs> How do you stop believing in the resurrection if you're a Christian? That doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. 
But Christians can be so deceived because he tells the Corinthians, you haven't lost your salvation, guys. You just got really wacky along the way. You haven't lost it because it's all about God keeping his promises. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, each in his own order. What's he talking about? Resurrection. What did Paul just say? If there is no resurrection, I am to be pitied above all men because I have placed all my hope on the fact that we are going to come back. He says in his own order, Christ the first fruits, first resurrected from the dead, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, that's the church, folks. That's us. This is the order of resurrection. This is called the first resurrection in the 20th chapter of Revelation. It comes in four stages. Okay? Christ, the first fruits, Alpha Company, the church, Beta Company. It says, Then comes the end, that's Gamma Company, when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. That's when he has made all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. That happens at the second advent. Fulfillment of Psalm 110. Now, he delivers up the kingdom. He says, here, Father, here it is. I present it to you. Here is the kingdom. That's second advent. Now, when is uh, when's the, the Old Testament saints going get, to get resurrected? Second advent. When do they get their resurrection body? Second advent. How do we know that? Daniel 12. Daniel 12, whenever the uh, is revealed to Daniel that there will be a resurrection at the end of the age. Now, what age is he living in? Israel. The age, end of the age of Israel happens at the end of the tribulational period. So that's Gamma Company. Alpha, Beta, Gamma. Christ, the church. Old Testament saints are those prior to the church. And then the fourth one, and he must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Now, that's the fourth one, Delta Company. And that occurs at the great white throne. That is, that is the ultimate uh, resurrection. Because that's going to be millennial saints. That's the easy way to see that. Because in the millennium, we're not going to be able to die. We'll be able to go back and forth in the millennium. It'd be a great time. But they're going to be human beings like you and I who are believers, who survived the trib as believers. Those are the sheep of Matthew 25. And they are going in to inherit the kingdom. Now they will repopulate the earth because they have the ability to do that. We won't. Because we'll be in resurrection body like the angels in heaven, neither marrying or giving in marriage. So we're not, gonna, we're not going to be repopulating the earth. But what's going to happen is you're going to have normal human beings that are going to have children, starting with 144,000 male virgin Jews. They will be a part of that, and they will play the role in repopulating the earth. Now, those people will have to believe also. And some of them won't. And that's sad. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. It says longevity is going to be increased. doesn't say death will be done away with in the millennial kingdom. That's misunderstanding. And so what we see, people may be living to be the age of Noah. 
I don't know, almost the full thousand years. But we've got we've got people that are going to survive uh, survive that and enter the millennial kingdom. So there are two kingdoms, a spiritual and a physical kingdom. And you have to understand that because Jesus came preaching the kingdom. And some people think, well, no. And John the Baptist preaching the kingdom. What kingdom was he talking about? Why did the Jews miss him? Because all they wanted was the physical kingdom. They wanted the Romans thrown out. They wanted the persecution removed. They wanted the unfair taxation removed. They wanted all these physical things removed. But he's talking about a kingdom that will last forever. Is he not? He is talking about, he says, if my kingdom were of this earth, my servants would be fighting whenever he was speaking to Pilate. So he was talking, first preaching a spiritual kingdom. And they rejected the spiritual kingdom, which was by faith, because they were going to hang on to it by works. Now, twice before, Paul charged Timothy. Two times before, he used diamarturomai, and he charged Timothy. In 1 Timothy 5.21, he charged Timothy to be impartial. To be impartial. I find it interesting in the New Testament that uh, when you get to the book of James, and you get into the second chapter of James, where people start fighting over salvation by grace or by works and they argue over things like that and misunderstand the, the deal with Abraham in there but what we find is that in James 2 we're told that God is not partial and we are told that we need to be impartial whenever it is a time for judgment there needs to be a, a spirit of impartiality and Paul writes Timothy the same thing from James to 2 Timothy 16 years later because the, the message needs to get out there I charge you in the presence of God even of Christ Jesus and his chosen angels or elect angels to maintain these principles without bias doing nothing in a spirit of partiality so Timothy has been charged to take care of that church at Ephesus and he says, when you're doing these things, let no one look down on your youth okay, and everything and love, purity, all that. He says, do this with a spirit of impartiality. Be, be careful what, what you do, but be sure that it is fair. He charged him to be impartial. He charged him to not wrangle about words. Now, he actually told Timothy to tell other people not to wrangle about words, but obviously if he's supposed to be an example, which he's charged him to be, if Timothy's supposed to be an example, he wasn't supposed to get involved in useless wranglings over words. Second Timothy 2.14 says, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless, and it leads to the ruin of the hearers. Boy, what, wouldn't that help some news media people right now? <sighs> useless wranglings over words. I think that's probably got the church into so much, uh, so many issues over the course of, of time, and they start... Uh, <laughs> the battles that go on, uh, a lot of people are imper 
not impervious to you. They just, uh, they don't know. They're even remotely going on. They talk about faith. There's a constant ongoing battle about faith. Does faith include works or not? And that's, that's the argument. That faith of necessity, if it's really faith, must have works. May faith should have works. Good works. Indeed, that's taught. But must have, if you're really saved, then it's really going to bring forth works. Well, it should. But some people are, are spiritual babies and never grow up. Now, <clears throat> this is uh, uh, the, the wrangling over words. I mean, they can. I find it amazing. If you ask a Supreme Court nominee, can you define a woman? Tell me what a woman is. And they completely avoid that. This is in the highest courts of the land. There's a problem, folks. It is a useless wrangling over words that leads to the ruin of the hearers. Not just in the church. In the world itself. Well, I'm not a biologist, was the answer. I cannot believe that. And yet, that's what happened. Now, the key principle... Is that in order to be adequate, see that's 317, that the man of God might be adequate, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Okay? In order to be adequate for every good work, we need to have the correct understanding of the Lord's appearing and his kingdom. So as to properly serve others in the ministry, knowing that one day we will give an account to the judge of all. 2 Corinthians 5.10 We all must stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ to be recompensed for our deeds in the body whether or not they're good and acceptable or whether they're worthless. So the key principle to be adequate for every good work in the contextual flow of this we need the correct understanding of the appearing. Okay? In other words, believers need to know at the, at the very basic Jesus actually did come, literally, physically, at the first advent, literally paid for sins. It is not a big extended allegory. It is not a myth. It is a historical fact. Okay? If they don't believe that, then how can they actually have faith in, a, in, a, in, a, in Jesus who took their place on a cross, died, was buried, and rose again? Are they having faith in a myth? You'd have to question whether or not they're even believers. And then, his, the rapture. He said he was coming back. Who is Jesus? The prophet like unto Moses. Every word that he uttered and said will be true. Do you believe that? It's a matter of faith. So, you're going to be judged by the fact you believe he came, he's coming back, and one day he's going to destroy all of his enemies. That's what he's going to do. And his kingdom. Do you believe that you're part of his kingdom now in the church? Yeah, you've already got promised a place in his kingdom. You just physically have not gotten it. And I've seen them argue that point back and forth to the point of ad nauseam. Some of the, the Latin there to try and impress you with ad nauseam. To the point of nausea. And uh, to give an account... That's there. By interpretation, the charge is to Timothy. 
My interpretation, that's what this charge is to. It's Paul writing specifically to Timothy. By application, it pertains to every believer. By application. When we're looking at these pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, we look at them and go, well, that was just for pastors. I've heard believers use that as an excuse. Well, that's just for pastors. Don't you want your pastor to be mature? I would hope. What do you find in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1? Qualifications for an elder. So if that's the qualifications for an elder, which is maturity, maybe it's the qualifications for everybody else if they want to be mature. They become mature. It's an application. By interpretation, he's addressing pastors. By application, though, because everybody, you're called to be a pastor. You're called to tend for and to care for those allotted to your charge. Those under your area of influence. And by interpretation, it's going to pertain to every believer. So it's not just Timothy that needs to know this. It's all the rest of us in the history of the church. We need, we're going to be judged by His appearing in His kingdom when we stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ. And we need to know what that involves. And if our thinking is not correct, we need to get it straight. We need to get it straight. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, once again for your matchless grace. Thank you for your amazing word. Father, we, get, we can get lost in the depth of it, just relishing in who you are and what you have revealed and the depth of what you've revealed. And Father, even now we know we've only scratched the surface of it. So Father, we thank you for continually giving us the opportunity to learn more and more about who you are. But Father, we know that knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. So let us learn in order to use it, in order to serve you, that you may receive all the glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.